Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today is Mandy Corrigan, a registered dietitian and a certified nutrition support clinician who serves as the Home Nutrition Support Service Manager at the Cleveland Clinics in Cleveland, Ohio. Mandy is the lead author of the special report, Resources for the Provision of Nutrition Support to Children in Educational Environments, written by the Aspen Home and Alternate Site section. This report is published in the December 2017 issue of NCP, and that issue focuses on the theme of home nutrition support. So thank you, Mandy, for joining me today for this discussion. And before we start our conversation, I'd like to ask Ms. Corrigan if she has any disclosures on this topic that she'd like to share. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I don't have any disclosure, but I would just like to note that my practice is with adults, and my role here with this special report with Aspen from the Home and Alternate Site Care section. I really want to thank all of the pediatric practitioners and colleagues for their expertise in coming up with this paper. Well, I just want to start out with the thought that as a parent, I know parenting sometimes is very rewarding, but it can be challenging. And I can't imagine being a parent of a child who needed nutrition support at home for the first time and trying to figure out the educational system. So first of all, do you have any information on how many school-aged children receive home nutrition support? You know, we don't really have a great understanding of how many children are out there that are receiving home nutrition support. Certainly we have some idea from the SUSTAIN registry where practitioners enrolled patients that were receiving home parenteral nutrition, but we didn't know much about the home enteral nutrition side of that. So it's still a big void that we have for understanding how many even adults are out there or children receiving home nutrition support therapies. And I would like to refer our readers to another paper in the December issue where there is an article that looks at the number of patients across the United States that we believe are enrolled in nutrition support, although I believe it's more focused on adults than pediatrics, because I do believe that's a void that is out there. We don't know how many people really receive nutrition support. The other thing I wanted to ask you is you refer to IEP and 504 plans so that we can understand what that means. Can you explain what those are and how they apply in the situation? And then also, are those plans only available in public schools? So what do you do if your child attends a private school? That's a really good and complicated question. A lot of this comes from the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. So that's a federal special education law where all school districts that are funded by the government, so primarily public schools, must you know, provide free education. And these kids that have disabilities and require that, they are required to have what's called an individual education plan or an IEP. And that's something that's developed and updated annually that has goals for the individual child. Now, for kids that don't necessarily qualify for special education, there's a 504 plan. And that's part of a different law. It's the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And the whole goal of that is to prohibit discrimination based on a child's disability. So a 504 plan 
it mainly spells out for like the classroom and the school accommodations to let the child attend the school safely. And in these plans, you can incorporate the nutritional needs for a child that may require nutrition support in the school setting. Now, for private schools, that's a little bit different. As I mentioned, the IEP comes with federal funding. And since private schools don't have, you know, the federal funding as part of their budgeting, they, you know, aren't required to have IEPs but they are bound to have a 504. They can't discriminate. They have to make accommodations for children with disabilities. What I would suggest really if there's, you know, parents and colleagues and school that have questions about that, they really need to look at what the private school offers. And that's really, you know, individualized based on the school and should maybe be discussed when selecting a private school as well. So when these children attend school, what are the specific roles of the parents or the educators with regards to those students who receive home nutrition support? And then how can we as nutrition support practitioners or home care providers help support these children and their families? Well, I'm going to start with parents because I think they certainly have a very difficult job to kind of release that care of their child to someone in the educational setting. And I don't have a child on nutrition support, but just having a child entering a school, I can understand, you know, that shift of responsibility. And really what the parents, their role is to really keep the lines of communication open with the school, with the medical care team and the home care team. So parents, of course, you know, we'll provide the equipment and the supplies that a child might need for their home nutrition support. They are also going to fill out any medical forms and updates the school will have. But really, I think that communication piece is so important. And to meet with a school personnel before the school year starts or when things are happening so that everyone becomes on the same page and really be the link to that medical care team as things change. On the flip side, the educators, you know, having a child there, their primary goal is delivering education, but they're also then responsible for delivering possibly um, nutrition support in an educational setting. So there has to be some protocols that respectfully minimize the time away from education so the child isn't missing out on their education and also promoting some normalcy for the children being in a school setting, you know, respecting that privacy, making sure to assess, you know, for the child to have a role in their care and also kind of having a plan for monitoring. I think what's most important is all of the actions and the routine care all drive from the physician's orders. And everything has to be in line in accordance with state and local regulations, of course. But the nurse or the school nurse, whoever the school nurse may be delegating some responsibilities to, there have to be competencies and monitoring in place. I've mentioned a little bit of how the parents can help link the educators and, and the education personnel to the medical team, that also might be part of the home care team. 
And I just would like to stress the importance that that is the the core group, the home care team and the medical team that can help provide some of the education and the resources to the school personnel. Certainly school personnel are most specialized in the education content for children, but they are responsible for having competencies in place or developing those or finding some education making sure that they're able to implement and monitor the physician's orders accordingly. Mandy, in Table 4 of your paper, your team summarized the potential complications that could be related to home nutrition support. And in reading through that list, I was thinking to myself, well, some of those complications are probably not going to be acute events, and they wouldn't have to be addressed by schools. For instance, infection and dehydration doesn't happen instantly during a school day. However, something like a line displacement may be an acute problem that would have to be addressed more quickly. So what advice should schools be provided on how to deal with those complications and and how much is the school really responsible for having to deal with some of those complications? That's a really good question. And I think for the schools, they need to know what complications could arise and they need to know what type of access devices that the patient has in place. So they are aware of what to do in what scenarios, which sounds very basic and easy, but it all goes back to looking at the plan, the IEP or the 504 plan, as well as the physician's orders, so that they have a basic understanding of what problems they need to act and with how quickly, and how are they to triage that. Is that a scenario where there's some urgency or is there a scenario that they can, let's say, like if there's a a G-tube dislodgement or something, if it's a J-tube, they should know from the protocol and from some of that education, they shouldn't be reinserting J-tubes. So it goes back to knowing exactly what devices the patient has, knowing what regulations are in place and what the physician has to order. Just like no two kids are exactly alike with their nutrition support plans, everything is individualized. And I think having the school be aware of what could happen helps them plan a little bit better. Even though there might be a slim chance for something to happen, they know exactly what to do for each child. I was also wondering if this report that's published in NCP or any other Aspen resource would provide additional advice for children who are school age who get nutrition support who may participate in after-school activities, specifically sports, if they're on the swim team, the basketball team, the soccer team. What guidelines can we provide to the schools or the parents for kids who play sports? We don't address specifically sports, but we do talk a little bit about activities and recess. And again, going back to that physician's order, what's the ability to participate in those activities? Certainly, we want the physician and the medical care team assessing that and coming up with that plan then for that child. You may have some other complications that you wouldn't normally see during the school day have more potential based on the the level of activity that that sport may require. So really going back to looking at some of the complications that could present themselves with too much activity or strenuous or contact, things like that. 
can you direct our readers and our listeners to any other resources that might be available to Aspen members on this topic of nutrition support in children? There are a lot of Aspen resources, certainly the, the PEDS core curriculum, the clinical toolkits, as well as there's other resources from the OLE Foundation or the Feeding Tube Awareness Foundation, and also a lot of the home care agencies will be able to provide some education to either practitioners or family members on the topic of, you know, nutrition support in the schools and how to transition that with home. Thanks. Before we finish, I just wanted to find out, Mand, if you have any other additional comments or ideas that you'd like to share with everyone today. You know, the whole goal of this paper was to really raise awareness since there are so many more medically complicated children that now with medicine being able to really save those children and now they're entering the school district. So our entire team was really just grateful to have the opportunity to put this together and would like to request people to share this with your colleagues, share it with your school district, your home care agency, and really just be a first best practice document for coming up with a resource for these children. So please spread the word. Help us. Well, thank you, Mandy, for sharing your expertise with us and our listeners. And I invite our audience to find out more about this report and see other articles on home nutrition support in the December 2017 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. 